Welcome to Podagogy's A Learning and Teaching Podcast. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. With the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, many of us have been forced to reimagine our classrooms, quickly shifting from in-person teaching in many cases to emergency remote teaching. We've all been confronted with questions about what's essential for learning, uh, how it happens in online spaces, as well as perhaps the larger future of digital pedagogy in a post-pandemic world. Joining us today are two scholars who study online pedagogy and who've been engaging in and writing about critical digital pedagogy for years. Sean Michael Morris is a senior instructor of learning design and technology in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Colorado. Jesse Stommel did his PhD at the University of Colorado Boulder and teaches courses in pedagogy, film and new media and is the executive director hybrid pedagogy at the Journal of Critical Digital Pedagogy. And together they co-founded the Digital Pedagogy Lab, an experiential development place for global digital pedagogy communities. And together they also wrote a book called An Urgency of Teachers. Welcome to you both. It's great Thank to be you. here. Thanks for having us. So I wanted to start today by um, maybe taking us back to when many parts of North America began going into lockdown uh, and many teachers began realizing that they'd have to suddenly transition their courses online almost literally overnight. I can say personally that when I had to do that, I was teaching a, a large first year course at the time. Um, the first place that I turned was actually both of your work. And you know, it helped me not only with my own course, but also in thinking about how in my role as an educational developer, I'd be supporting other faculty on campus. Um, and so I'm really curious to know, as this was happening in the spring, what were your first thoughts about the way that post-secondary institutions were, were very suddenly doing this transition to remote delivery? You know, the first thing that I remember thinking about and kind of feeling some ire about, to be honest, was the, the very frequent use of the phrase pivot to online. And the reason that this bothered me is that for years, Sean and I in our work and sort of a central tenet that runs through our book and urgency of teachers is this idea that what happens in a face-to-face -face class and what happens in an online course are fundamentally different. That, that you can't just take what happens in a face-to-face -face course and neatly pour it into an online class. And I've seen over many years, lots of initiatives, uh, faculty development initiatives, lots of different approaches to instructional design that are predicated on this idea that you can do that, that you can just reproduce what we do in classrooms in an online environment. So my issue with this idea of a pivot to online is that we could neatly take what we were planning to do face to face, and then just pivot, like easily pivot, like you're in a desk chair, pivot from left to right, and, and, and throw it all online as though that could or would reproduce the kinds of relationships that we develop in face-to-face -face classes, especially with no preparation on the part of many of the faculty who were asked to do that. My other issue with this idea of the pivot was it suggested a neat and tidy pivot back, this idea that we would pivot to online until April, and then we would all just pivot back and get to see each other once again. What we've seen to be true, in fact, which I think a lot of us could have predicted, was that there has been no neat and tidy pivot back to face-to-face. -to -face. And I don't think even if we open all schools and universities in September, which I don't necessarily think is where we're headed, but if we do, I still don't think we'll feel this neat and tidy pivot back to business as usual. I think that our work has fundamentally changed and this moment is continuing to change our work in ways that we couldn't have anticipated 
Yeah, it's a hard realization to make. I think, you know, the, the, the sense of loss, or I, I know a lot of folks that I work with, their sense of loss um, is so big that to imagine that things have changed for good and can't go back, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to embrace. I don't know, Sean, for you, is it a similar thought that went through your head or something different? I think the first thought that I had was just, oh, no. <laughs> um, Jesse and I have been working on this for, for a very, very long time. We've been working together for about 20 years and sort of developing this whole idea of critical digital pedagogy and the kinds of online design that go along with it, the kinds of teaching methods and that sort of thing that can kind of go along with it. Um, and it's really been very much a grassroots effort. It's been, let's reach out to some people. Let's talk to this group. Let's talk to that group. Let's do this podcast. Let's do that podcast. Let's talk to whomever we can. And we'll just slowly develop this thing so that more and more people are kind of starting to figure out how they can do it. So when we saw this happen, one of the first things I, I messaged to Jesse was, this is probably the worst thing that could have happened to the work that we do. Because what was going to happen was everyone's going to shift online without any thought, without any really figuring it out. Um, and so many people who don't want to teach online, who never want to teach online, students who never wanted to be online, were now suddenly going to be in, in a space of teaching and learning that, frankly, Jesse and I have always sort of considered less than the best possible. And uh, so they were going to find themselves in this space and then judge the the entire experience of online teaching and learning by that, which means that that was going to make later on in our, once this is over, it's going to make conver having conversations about critical digital pedagogy that much harder because there'll be that many people who have now experienced online teaching and learning in ways that were substandard um, and that weren't anchored in the way that they teach and the way that they want to teach, which is where our work kind of develops out of. Well, and also the idea of choice. I mean, so many of the people and students who are suddenly asked to learn online didn't make a choice to do that. It, the truth is that not everybody is born to be an online teacher. Not everybody is born to be an online student. There are different people who learn in different ways at different times in their lives. And one of the most important thing is us getting to choose how we approach our education. And so, so many people being thrust into situations they had never planned for. I, mean, I remember Sean and I, we for quite a while ran open office hours where we just let teachers come in and talk to us, talk to each other. And we ended up doing that a lot longer than we had planned to because people needed to have those conversations. But I remember talking to someone who said, if this is what teaching is going to be, I don't know if I want to be a teacher anymore. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the online bit necessarily. It was the pivot. It was the fact that it wasn't really online learning that they were experiencing. What they were experiencing was some sort of emergency remote teaching and learning which is very different with no plan or consideration of what that work might look like or how that work might live online. And then the other piece is that we're also dealing with institutional crises that are affecting our work in such drastic ways, funding crises. Students who were facing food and housing insecurity before the pandemic are now facing it even more. Students who have experienced chronic trauma or chronic illness suddenly now also dealing with an acute feeling of trauma and illness on top of that. So our work isn't what it once was. And I don't, and I, again, I'll say, I don't know that it is ever going to be, or maybe never was what we thought it was. So Jesse, I, I hear you saying, you know, our work isn't what it once was. And as you're describing this sort of sudden kind of muddling up of emergency remote teaching and online teaching and how lines are becoming blurry and, and maybe difficult for people to navigate, you know, I'm wondering what needs to happen now then? Where, where do we go from here? 
I mean, I think that the there's a really obvious answer, and I don't see a lot of for me, and I don't see a lot of institutions jumping at this call that I've made pretty frequently, which is that institutions need to be investing in faculty development, and they need to be investing in student support. They need to stop investing their money in remote proctoring solutions, in plagiarism detection services, in student retention, algorithmic student retention software packages, learning management systems. We need to recognize that what we didn't have in this moment that we desperately needed was a robust emphasis on teaching and learning, pedagogy, faculty development, teacher preparation. That was the disaster of this moment. And it's really been sad to me to see the public college system in the state of Illinois just invested 23 million initial dollars in a remote proctoring solution with $25 million every year following the initial investment. Can you imagine what could happen if that money was invested in faculty development and student support services? I just want to jump in really quickly and say that there is, and I, I've been this person during the entire pandemic saying, I don't believe in silver linings. And I'm not trying to say there's a silver lining of the pandemic at all. But I do want to point out that as proctoring services and as everyone's been online and starting to encounter these same problems that a lot of the community around critical digital pedagogy have, have been talking about for a while, um, proctoring services, turn it in, uh, surveillance, um, all of those sorts of things that, that have been common practice for a long time, but only for a portion of people who are learning because only a portion was learning online, are now suddenly exposed to a lot more people. And we're seeing that conversation widen now. And so people who were never even concerned what was happening digitally are now suddenly very concerned with what was ha what's happening digitally. And so you're seeing the conversation get bigger and bigger. And you're seeing companies like Portorio, for example, being taken to task, both in social media and, and in other ways. People are paying closer attention to the problems. And along those lines, I wanted to say too, that a lot of the work that Jesse and I have done, maybe, maybe this sounds weird, but actually rises out of a sense of dissatisfaction. Neither of us actually like teaching online. And that's why we teach online. And that's why we do this work. What we love about classroom teaching is not happening in an online space. And so what we're trying to do is figure out ways we can make that happen in online. Not the kind of take it here and put it there, but what can we do in online spaces that makes teaching feel really gratifying, that makes learning feel really gratifying. Um, and it can feel like college. It can feel like a, the actual experience that we all want to have. So one possibility that, that might be coming at us is that that dissatisfaction is much more widespread now. And so there's a chance for bigger conversations to take place around what kind of pedagogies are necessary for really making online learning work. Yeah, I love that. There's a lot of follow-up I would love to do to that and, and that we will. You know, just for our listeners that maybe don't know critical digital pedagogy and some of the underlying ideas that you work with, do you want to maybe say a little bit about sort of the, the theoretical foundation of that and, and how you approach learning in an online environment? So both Sean and I's work started our foundational research and reading and encountering of pedagogy started with the ideas of critical pedagogy and particularly the ideas of Paulo Freire and the ideas of Bell Hooks, Henry Giroux, quite a, a, quite a few others working in that area. And then also tossing in who aren't necessarily traditionally thought of as critical pedagogues, uh, people like John Dewey, people like Peter Elbow. And so thinking about those ideas and what sort of what's at the heart of that work. So reading your world, teaching students to be critical observers of their world, 
toward the end of making change in their material circumstances and in the world more broadly. Thinking about the relationship between students and teachers and the fact that the hierarchical relationship between teachers and students is not particularly effective and doesn't create a, it doesn't create a community that is hospitable to the kinds of, uh, the kinds of learning that we want to have happen. And also thinking about student agency and how do students become full participants in their education and what needs to happen? What barriers do we need to knock down? And ultimately our project with critical to digital pedagogy was to think, how does that work happen in digital space? And how do our digital technologies in some ways frustrate that kind of work? And also how, how does the digital provide affordances to support that work? An example being the learning management system. Sean and I wrote a piece, it was a two-part blog post and it was cheekily titled, If Bell Hooks Made a Learning Management System. Ultimately, we argued bell hooks wouldn't make a learning management system. And also it is presumptuous of us to imagine that we could be the ones who would declare what her learning management system would look like. But the thought problem underneath that was to think about the ways in which a learning management system actually frustrates the relationships at the heart of the work of critical pedagogy. So if you think about things like dialogue, which Paulo Freire talks about quite a bit about, and ultimately students being able to move between being students and being teachers. He talks about the student-teacher and the teacher-student, the ways in which those roles are permeable and breaking down the hierarchies. Learning management systems are designed to be hierarchical. The teacher has permissions, the students have permissions. It is incredibly hard to subvert the hierarchical nature of the learning management system. It doesn't mean good work can't happen in the learning management system. It means that it's built in such a way that that good work is frustrated from the outset. Uh, and then you think about Bell Hooks and what she writes about. She writes about connection. She writes about um, critical hope. She writes about joy. She writes about excitement. She writes about us seeing one another, bringing our full selves to the work. And you think about the discussion forum inside the learning management system. Is that a place where we bring our full self? Is that a place where we see one another? Is that a space of excitement and joy and critical hope? The answer is no, it's not. It's not built to be that. And it also frustrates that. Doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean it can't happen in that space. It means that the space is architectured in a way that those kinds of relationships are frustrated from the get-go. We don't necessarily talk about it all the time, but one of the other aspects of the ways that critical pedagogy intersect with the digital um, is critical pedagogy um, in a Frarian tradition really wasn't just about classrooms. It wasn't about schooling. It was actually, it was very much about helping people, especially um, oppressed people, people who were in lower classes, who were laboring classes, sort of begin to understand their world and be able to work toward change. That translates into a classroom environment in certain ways. But ultimately the work was work of, of social justice. It was, it was work that took place outside of schools. So when we talk about the digital, of course, the digital exists across all kinds of barriers, right? It permeates all kinds of barriers. Um, students bring into a classroom digital pieces of their lives that are no part of their classroom necessarily, but they're there with them. Um, they bring in Twitter and Instagram and I don't know what are the kids doing these days, TikTok. And so teaching should sort of address that when we're in digital space too, um, the idea of like an open pedagogy, of uh, a sense of learning happening on the actual web is really important because we have to recognize that what we're doing is we're not teaching students. We don't want to teach students to work inside of an LMS. 
there will be no purpose behind that once they graduate. What we do want to do is help students learn how to be on the internet. And so thinking about digital literacies and digital identity becomes part of that dialogue as well. And dialogue becomes part of that dialogue. How are you interacting with the rest of the internet? How are you interacting with the web? Do you understand yourself on social media? Do you understand the, the consequences of all of this, all of this stuff? And that should happen within the context of learning online because the digital permeates all those spaces. So it isn't really, it isn't really realistic to think of, of having those boundaries in a classroom in the same way. And that actually gives us the opportunity to do that sort of more social justice kind of work through our pedagogy than we would in, if we were just stuck inside the LMS. I want to pick up on what you're saying, Sean, about doing social justice work in a digital way. You know, I'm thinking about a lot of things that, that both of you are saying around challenging hierarchies, around student agency, around dialogue. And I also know that one of the ways that critical digital pedagogy is, is described in, in some of your writing is that it fosters resilience. As someone who teaches in areas of social justice, I'm, I'm really drawn to the work that you do and thinking about how to challenge the LMS systems that I, that I have to work within and how to do that with students and how to do things like practice online coalition building um, in the frames that the institution gives us, which is not always um, a very easy balance, right? I guess I, I worry as I hear you talking, as I hear you using this language, uh, Ferrarian language that I think, you know, originally was tended, intended to think about uh, the ways that we can engage in social justice pedagogy, both in the classroom and online. These words again and again, they get co-opted by the institution. So you have grant applications or EDI kind of decrees that really want us to talk about digital fluency and resilience and, and all of those things. And of course, resilience as an example can be one of those really tricky terms that has a double-edged meaning. It can be really effective when we're up against global challenges, but it can also be a way of uh, avoiding institutional responsibility by sort of downloading the labor of putting up with all of this onto students in particular. I wonder, as I hear you speak, do you have any concern or any thought that critical digital pedagogy could get co-opted in this way? Oh, that's fascinating. I've never thought about it being co-opted. I wonder if there's money in that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Part of how I want to respond, I think, is actually just to, to sort of look again at critical pedagogy, because critical pedagogy itself is, uh, it's critical for a reason, right? It's constantly looking at its own assumptions. It's constantly looking at the assumptions that we bring to it. Um, one of the things that, that students both love and find really challenging in our classes is that we never stop questioning. They bring something, they're like, oh, I found this out. And they're like, yeah, that's so cool. And this, and what about this? And what about this? And we keep dig down deeper, keep digging into these ideas, keep digging into the ideas. So you bring up the idea of resilience in the class, for example, and you do so as an invitation to question resilience. You do so as, a, as, as an invitation to say, this term that we keep hearing and that's being pasted all over the place, let's really think about what this means. Let's think about the problems that are associated with it, um, who, who's marketing it basically, who, who benefits from us talking about resilience, really thinking about those things and trying to encourage that critical lens, which is so foundational in critical pedagogy. That's where we get this idea of, of reading your world. And that reading your world never stops. You just constantly are doing it. This is actually something that my family can't stand about me 
I, they'll say one thing and I'll be like, hmm, is that true? How is it not true? Who <laughs> benefits from this? And just, you know, the constant back and forth dialogue. But that's actually what we're teaching in critical digital pedagogy is that questioning, um, that ability to read your world. We don't teach tools because tools change. But what we do teach is how do you relate to tools? What do you do with tools? How do you think about tools? Um, and, and I think that because of that, because of the nature of that, I don't know that it can be co-opted. I think that it could be sort of glossed over and said, hey, we do critical digital pedagogy. But if they're really doing the work, it, it itself is going to question itself even as it goes along. So I often write, and I, I've probably written this in a number of chapters Sean and I have written in our book, on, in blog posts, uh, on Twitter. Uh, I essentially talk about the impetus within critical digital pedagogy to raise an eyebrow at things. And so if I think about like a word like resilience, I actually love the word resilience. If I sit and look at the Oxford English Dictionary and I pour over it and read about its history and all its various potential meanings, I love the word. On the other hand, I don't love what's been done with the word. And so if we really raise our eyebrows at a word like resilience, what do we find? As Sean pointed out, like who has the necessary privilege to be resilient? What kind of resilience could we expect from a student who's food and housing insecure? What kind of resilience might we expect from a student who is going in for a surgery for a chronic illness in the midst of a term? Like, what does it actually mean to think about resilience in a context where we're not just talking about privileged people who are trying to, who are even in the midst of our current moment, struggling to wake up in the morning sometimes. But when we actually think about marginalized students who are being shut out of education, who even has the ability to be resilient because they're there? I think that my other issue with the word resilience in sort of edu speak is that I often see it in conversations about retention. Suddenly put the word resilient next to the word retention and the word retention, which I already have issues with, it does a harm to the word resilience. It essentially turns resilience into a market force. I mean, the issue with retention is why in the world would a, an institution of education presume that it is necessarily good to retain students? Students should be making choices about what they want for their life, what kind of school they want to go. I taught at Georgia Tech for many years. And I remember getting a call from a parent who said, my student, my kid is thinking about dropping out of Georgia Tech. And can you help talk them out of doing that? And I thought that is not my role. First of all, this is a FERPA violation for us even to be having this conversation. So I'm going to stop it there and, and I'm going to direct you to talk to your, your kid. And I will also talk to them as, as their teacher, as a separate, as completely separate interaction. But the truth is that that student might've been pressured by their parent to go to Georgia Tech in the first place. They might not want to be an engineer. They might be overwhelmed and having acute anxiety or panic attacks because of the culture on the Georgia Tech campus. Some students can thrive there, others, others don't. And so making those critical decisions of what they want for their educations, I think is key. And, and it is part of our role to help them make those decisions, but it's certainly not our role to retain students. You know, at the heart of what you're both saying there, and it's it's something that I've really taken away from your work that, that I really appreciate is, you know, how much metacognitive work you get your students to do, that, that, that all of the pedagogy is organized around metacognition. Um, and that sort of takes us into the landscape of grading as well. This past December in Canada, we have a, a magazine called McLean's, which is a, a prominent uh, current affairs publication. 
and there was an opinion piece that was written by an undergraduate student uh, named Jonah Dunch at the University of Alberta. And Jonah made the argument that uh, it was time for Canadian universities to go gradeless, that students learned more in a gradeless environment, that you know our current evaluation system doesn't get students to explore, to challenge themselves, or following in, in free air, you know, it doesn't encourage them to fail and to, uh, to learn from that failure, from, from the challenges that they experience. So I know, you know, Jesse, I, I've read some of the stuff that you've written where you said you haven't assigned a grade in 20 years. Um, I know both of you have, have talked quite a bit about ungrading. Can you tell us a bit about what ungrading is and how it works and, and why it's so important to critical pedagogy? It's actually a nice segue from the previous question about the idea of something being co-opted. Because even as we speak, the, the conversation about ungrading is almost on a daily basis being co-opted as a neat trick that we can do to, to make our teaching better. But the truth is that's not ungrading. Uh, ungrading is this same raising your eyebrows at the culture around grades and the culture that we've created around assessment. You cannot stop, snap your fingers and suddenly remove grades from the equation. It has to be a critical conversation. Even, and I've said this in some of my writings, even though I haven't put a grade on a piece of student work in 20 years, every classroom that I'm in, whether digital or on ground, the grade is still hovering in the room and influencing how we talk about our work, how we, what kind of learning we do, influencing our motivations. And, uh, and also causing pressure and anxiety for teachers and students alike. And so the idea that we could suddenly snap our fingers and go gradeless, I think, is, is, is a fiction. And I think better for us to do the harder work of asking questions of how we got to where we are, why our systems are structured the way they are, what kinds of damage has been done, what would happen if we just suddenly pulled grades off the table, all of the ways that that would ripple throughout a system that has been really constructed around their use. Uh, and then also listening, we, we haven't, I'm so glad that you brought up the story about that student because we haven't listened enough to the voices of students. And if we just determine how we're gonna do the work of assessment without drawing students into a much larger conversation about their learning, I think that we're, we're ultimately doing more harm. On the other hand, I would absolutely love if you can get me a meeting with anyone in Canada who has the power to make the entire Canadian system gradeless, I would happily sit down in a room with that person <laughs> and help them strategize that. Okay, I'll work on it. <laughs> I, Sean, is this something, I mean, I think I'd love to get into this conversation with you both about kind of doing some of this questioning. Um, because even as you talk about the learning management system or a discussion board, you know, the logic of all of this is so focused on, like, if I do my one post and I respond twice, I will get this grade. And when I post, I'm expected to quote one author or like, you know, it becomes so programmatic um, that it really doesn't take into account a wider learning experience. So I'm wondering, you know, are there ways, practical ways, and I know there are because I've read some of your work, but do you want to maybe speak to some of the ways that you can do this metacognitive work with students and then end up at arriving at a grade that you work to together? Maybe I'll start by just saying one thing that I think is really valuable. I've been thinking lately about, and maybe especially this year, I've been thinking about, and I don't know exactly what words to use to describe this, something like bureaucratic harm or bureaucratic abuse or bureaucratic trauma. The ways in which our systems are structured so that students have to fill out a series of forms before they get help and support. If I even look at how most um, disability resource centers work, students petition 
in order to get accommodations. And then those accommodation letters end up being the thing that they deliver to their faculty. That that form is kind of the beginning of a conversation between a student and a faculty member. It doesn't always work that way at every institution, but a lot of institutions are structured around this. You have to push paper before you can just talk to people about how and why you're struggling. And I think the same thing is true about grades. Is there a way that we can remove some of the bureaucratic layers? I watched this happen with the pivot to online and the move that many institutions pushed towards having some sort of compassionate grading policy. The institution I was teaching at at the time, University of Mary Washington, did institute a compassionate grading policy. On the other hand, I found nothing compassionate about it because it involved a series of bureaucratic steps that students had to take. And one of the deep problems with that is that the students who most need help and support are least able to go through those bureaucratic steps. Ultimately, if there's any way that in our systems of grading and our systems of assessment, we can remove those bureaucratic layers, making sure that when you're asking students to do self-reflection or metacognitive work, making sure that it doesn't feel like a worksheet, that it doesn't feel like busy work. I even talk about it with, with students as a letter that they're writing to me. And I feel like even just the language we use, the way that we talk about it, giving it over to students as a space where they can express themselves about their learning rather than a transactional something that they're turning in. I've tried in my courses also to remove all moments, almost all moments where students are submitting something to me. My students submit two things to me throughout the entire term, their midterm self-reflection, their final self-reflection. And only because I want those to be private documents if the students want them to be private. I want to give them the space to, to do that work. Everything else they share with the entire class and I'm just one of the members of the class. And students will ask, have you kept track? And I'm like, keeping track of what you turn in and don't turn in, that's, I don't believe that's my job as a teacher. I am not the assignment police. My job isn't to collect your work and put it in a pile. So I guess I would say that any way that we can reduce that sort of bureaucratic nature of the relationship between students and also between teachers and students. I want to point out something that actually a lot of students have pointed out to me. What Jesse said is essentially the same for me. This is how we both approach teaching. Um, I tend to be a little bit more cold water about everything. <laughs> the beginning of the semester, it's like, so you're not getting any grades. This is how this works. And then over the course of the term, work with students as their anxieties come up, as they start to have difficulty with that, and they want to get feedback. I mean, they get feedback, but they want to have the feedback of a grade. There's a weird authoritarianism in doing critical pedagogy you're still a teacher and you still have to set these weird rules and students don't necessarily want them. They come in and they're like, yeah, sure. You want to get rid of the bureaucratic stuff, but I like the bureaucratic stuff. I'm used to the bureaucratic stuff. I understand where I stand within the bureaucratic stuff. And so there's always this, not with every student, but there's always this sort of tension with some students of, I'm just not going to give you a grade. I'm not going to do it. We can talk about it all you want. We can talk and talk and talk about your work, but I'm not going to give you a grade. Some students will get to the end of the term and have no idea why that's still the case, why they're still, because they're going to get a grade on a transcript, um, but why they didn't get a grade throughout the whole thing. And, but um, most students within a few weeks will realize how much more free they feel in doing their work and in having conversations in discussion forums and that sort of thing. Because everything gets rearranged when you start thinking about it in terms of critical digital pedagogy. You depart from what you... I mean, not only the hierarchical relationship between student and teacher, but really a departure from the whole sense of what the classroom community is made of. And so much of that does hinge on grades, so much of it hinges on authority. 
Um, and you start to just sort of take that apart. And for me, a lot of applying critical digital pedagogy is a sort of if this, then what um, approach. If I don't believe in grades, then what do I do about grades? If I think the discussion forum doesn't work, what do I do about discussion? Um, those those sorts of those sorts of um, puzzles that you have to sort of work out as you're going along. And it's best, really, if if you can approach it in a way that that evolves with students each term. So you can sit down and say, well, this is normally this is this is my standard. This is what I start with. But then you watch and you cooperate and you you create new rules, you create new methods of doing things throughout the semester, depending on those students. Um, I often say that there are no best practices in critical digital pedagogy, and that's because the practices have to change depending on what the environment is, depending on who the students are, depending on what they're needing and what they're wanting and how they can interact or don't interact. It's very much a, um, a responsive kind of, of pedagogy. Thanks, Sean, for, um, for describing this sort of responsive pedagogy as an ongoing or an evolving rearrangement. And I think, you know, Jesse, when you were talking about the bureaucracy that comes with accommodation, that uh, particular scenario that you offered is very familiar to me. It's very familiar to the students that I work with um, because my background is in critical disability studies. And I started teaching in a critical disability studies program that was online at Ryerson many years ago. And, you know, that rearranging is something that we constantly had to do or something that I constantly had to do before sort of emergency remote teaching became necessary. So, you know, it comes up when we think about access in broad ways. Who is this class for? Who is here? Um, and how do we go beyond compliance? So it's not just about making a course that meets the equity standards at your institution. It's about making a course that can respond to and support students in responding to the movements that surround them. And that might be disability justice. It might be care work movements. It might be, you know, any number of things. In so doing over the past few years, one piece of your work that I've come to really connect to is your writing on digital learning as a third space. So something about, you know, as you were saying earlier, it's not just a pivot from one place to another. It's not this, this binary that we can move between, but it's a third space. It's, it's something a little different. And I'm just wondering if you can speak about that more for our listeners and what you mean by a third space when you write about it that way. I, one of the things I think is really important is that we not only bring students into a process by which they build, help build their education, but also that they help build the environment and the space for their education. And the idea of space when you're talking about digital space is complicated. Where does it live? Where does the course live? I have a course uh, assignment that I do with my students in a digital studies course where they have to rebuild the internet. And I ask questions like, where is the internet? Who is the internet? Is the internet a person? Um, does the internet just have people? Uh, and you know, asking these kinds of questions starts to get them thinking about how it functions. It isn't just a geographic location. The web is people. And so if we think about how we move about in a space like the web, it functions very differently 
than a college campus. There isn't a neat and tidy corollary. You can't go to, for example, the website of a college campus and have it in any way reproduce the physical space of the college campus. It comes nowhere near to reproducing it. So instead you have to think about, well, if that website isn't the corollary, if we throw out this idea that there is a neat and tidy corollary, then where is Ryerson online? What is Ryerson online? Who's at Ryerson online right now? And the truth is that there aren't easy answers to those questions. And it's one of the reasons why I like the idea of a third space, because it forces you to ask questions about how this space might function significantly differently. And also how, uh, how we might engage and, and find one another in different ways in that space. If I look at what we're doing right now, the problem of, so we're recording this inside of Zoom, the problem of Zoom is it's trying to reproduce a way that we might engage with one another if we were inside of a, con a conference room. It works really well for recording this podcast. It is not necessarily particularly good at helping us develop a rapport or helping us develop relationships with one another. We create these digital places that are about reproducing the kind of instrumental functional things that might happen. But it's those ephemeral, like where inside of this space is Zoom encouraging side conversations, encouraging tangents, encouraging us to get off topic? How do we move easily in and out of this space? Have you ever been in a Zoom conversation where it ends on the hour and someone just hits end and suddenly you're staring at a blank screen and poof, everyone is gone. That isn't how relation, so this system is designed to reproduce the mechanics of a conversation, but not necessarily designed to create a hospitable place for human relationships. So ultimately, if I think about online learning, we have to be thinking really consciously about those things. What is the thing you love most about teaching? And, and to go back to the poof, everyone's gone. I love those few minutes before class starts in a face-to-face -face classroom where there's just a hum in the room and you're maybe not talking to students, but you're just kind of overhearing a bunch of conversations, saying hello to people as they come in. And then I love that moment at the end of class where some people stay and they linger and they they want to continue conversations and maybe you're talking to them as you walk out into the hall. Those are such idyllic kind of classic college moments, but those are moments I love. And so if you think about when, you, when you're teaching online and you're learning and figuring out how to teach online, stop putting so much energy into reproducing the content and delivering content to students. Put all of your energy into thinking about how do I find those moments with my students? How do I do activities with my students that feel like that? And there aren't easy answers in Zoom, there aren't easy answers in the learning management system because those systems are not designed to reproduce or even care that those moments exist. Yeah, I've been in some focus groups with both students and faculty members and um, almost all of them brought up that exact point, those 10 minutes before class, the, the moments after class that in many ways, those are the most central to the learning. Those are the moments when, um, you know, when, when learning feels most tangible and real for sure. Sean, what are, what are your feelings about this? I, mean, I very much agree with what Jesse's saying. I think um, the experience over 2020 has been interesting because Jesse and I have been talking about this stuff for so many years, and yet here we had to practice what we preach in, in, in a way that, that we've never had to before. Um, we've, we've both given digital keynotes now, we've done digital workshops now, we've done all these things that we never thought we would have to do. Um, and it's been, even for us, it's, there's been this kind of adjustment. That adjustment comes, again, from that sort of critical looking at what am I doing? Where am I? What does this space look like? What are the affordances and what are the limitations? Um, 
So when COVID happened, um, one of the first things that sort of was my alarm was that I'm the director of Digital Pedagogy Lab. And Digital Pedagogy Lab is traditionally a very much on ground um, event. So much so that I call it a gathering, right? There's people who come from all over the world to come together and talk about this stuff. And Jesse and I, when we designed Digital Pedagogy Lab, decided not to make it even hybrid, to make it very much an on-ground experience because what we wanted was we wanted people to have that kind of intensive summer camp kind of thing happen for them. It's a wonderful kind of learning experience to have. Um, so now I had to try to bring that online. And I found myself thinking the same things that so many teachers I've talked to think, well, okay, if I do this, can I move it here? Can I do it this way on, online? And trying to find ways to reproduce that effect and recognizing that that's not gonna be possible and also recognizing that I don't know how to do this. And so I'm going to give it my best possible try. And we're gonna do it this way and we're gonna try this and I'm gonna work with faculty all the way through and try to figure out how this is, how this is gonna work. And so much of it did occupy that kind of third space. And, one way that I'd sort of describe that third space, I think is um, it's sort of coy, but it, but I talk about things being synchronish. Um, so things aren't synchronous or asynchronous, they're synchronish. Um, and DPL, uh, Digital Pedagogy Lab, is, is very much a sort of synchronish thing. It takes place over a single week, but over 20 different time zones. So people are not attending at the same time. No one's attending at the same time, but they're all kind of learning at the same pace. They're all experiencing the event in the same ways across those, those time zones and in, and in different spaces. I also really encourage people to bring whatever space they're in into whatever they're doing, into whatever learning they're, they're, they're having. Whether that means that they don't have as much time to do the thing they need to do or they want to do, or that means that they're bringing their kids in or they're bringing their spouse in or whatever that might mean. Um, or they're doing digital pedagogy lab on this side of the screen and they're doing their work on that side of the screen kind of thing. Like so, um, but to try to really think about, well, what space are you actually in? How does that then become part of your learning experience? To me, it always comes down to that, that critical thinking aspect of what's really going on? What am I actually looking at? And how can I, how can I make this work for my learning? I think a really good example of, of this is suddenly students are learning, in some cases, they're learning online from their childhood bedrooms. Younger students who have had to go home because of the, the lockdown, and they don't have a space in their house except for their childhood bedroom to do learning online. And yet we demand things of them like you have to turn your camera on. Well, what does that mean for a student who's learning from their childhood bedroom? What kind of invasion of privacy is that requirement? It has a good philosophy potentially underlying it. Let's, we wanna be able to see each other. That's valuable, but you can't, we wanna be able to see each other at the expense of, I'm gonna require you to show me your private space. Um, and then, interestingly, I, I know folks who turn on those virtual backgrounds. And sometimes those virtual backgrounds are about screening that private space that you don't want to share. And that's a really valuable thing to be able to do. On the other hand, I think sometimes people put those screens on because they're being asked by their teacher, being asked by their boss, being asked by even just the culture of an organization to not let their private light bleed into their their professional life or their academic life and right now that's impossible my daughter has zoom bombed so many of my meetings so many of my classes and to try and keep her out would be to basically try and imagine myself as a not full human being right now i don't get to go to work 
I have to work in an environment where my kids and my dog and my husband are there and they're part of the work. And so, yes, like we have to be attentive to the idea of creating the option of privacy and protecting those private spaces. But we also have to recognize that it's a real point of privilege for you to basically, I, there was one teacher that I read their rules for a Zoom classroom that no dogs could appear and no kids could appear. And I'm just like, what world are you living in where you can make those kind of requirements? I was in a one of Sean and I's Zoom office hours and I got a knock on the door and it was the mailman hand delivering a certified letter that was an announcement of my husband getting laid off. That happened during class. And part of me thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's private. I'll just pop back into the room. But I wandered around the house in a kind of daze. Luckily, I was co-teaching with Sean, so I texted him and told him what happened. Wandered around the house in a daze because I couldn't bring myself back into the classroom. And then I realized the way I can bring myself back is just being honest with these people and telling them what happened. Because that happened three feet from them, five feet from them. And so we both have to protect that, that option of privacy and also recognize that, that we can't snap our fingers and suddenly be in class and not be six other places. And that's true. That's been true for online learners as long as I've been teaching online. My online learners are complicated. They have complicated lives. That's why they turn to online learning. That's actually why, even though I don't love teaching online, I keep doing it because I love the students that I work with. They're students that, that I never have, have gotten to work with in any other way because they never had access to education. I had one student who had chronic migraines. He couldn't come to face-to-face -face class because he was chronically ill. He never knew when he would suddenly have a migraine and not be able to be present. He could learn online. But he also required me to teach in a way that was mostly asynchronous because I couldn't expect him to suddenly show up. He might be in the midst of a huge migraine. He might be in a dark room um, with hot water, uh, hot, hot water spraying on his head where people who have migraines, there's lots of things that work. I'm imagining, you know, if I'm a, if I'm an instructor that has 300 students in a class that I've been forced to take onto zoom, all this stuff that we're talking about sounds just lovely, but my gosh, like how I put this into practice seems impossible. There's the stuff that's happening in our classrooms. And then there's the stuff that's happening at an institutional level. If, if I'm an instructor and I really want to begin to practice some of the things we're talking about today. What would be your advice to me in terms of how I might start doing something like this? In, in particular, if I have a huge class or a class that has so many boundaries and barriers that are not of my choosing. I just have a short answer and then I'll let uh, Sean talk. It's, in fact, it's a four word answer. Uh, I, several years ago, I challenged people on Twitter to come up with their four word pedagogies, try and see if they could explore their pedagogical approach in four words. And inspired by the idea of a six word story where someone writes a narrative in, in six words, tons of amazing, amazing responses to that. But mine was start by trusting students. And I've stuck with that since, and it's really res it continues to resonate with me. Almost any paragraph of my syllabus, almost any decision I make in my teaching, I can bring it back and let it sit next to the idea of start by trusting students. And it becomes almost a test of whether or not my approach is, is gonna work really. And I think the one thing about start by trusting students is that it scales, trust scales. There's lots of things that don't scale, but trust scales and it scales immensely. And so when you're talking about a 300 person class, giving authority over to the students scales because the more responsibility and authority you give up 
the more they take, they, and they do, they jump in and take responsibility for their learning in various different ways. And so I guess that's what I would say is that the second that you begin with a comment, like start by trusting students, then do you collect every piece of homework that they do? Or can you just trust that they did it, whether or not your eyes went across it? In a 300 person class, as much work as I ask my students to do, I'd never be able to even look at it all, much less engage with it all. So I have to just let go and say, they either did it or they didn't do it, and that's up to them. And so that, I guess that would be my piece of advice. Whenever someone wants advice, it's often a best practice they're looking for. It's something that they can plug and play. And just, that doesn't exist in critical pedagogy. So something like start with trusting students is what I would refer to as a, as a habitus, um, the habitus of critical pedagogy, the place from which you teach, the place from which you make up the new rules, the place from which you improvise. Um, and getting in touch with what that is for you as a teacher, recognizing how do I teach what's really important to me about my students, about my subject, and then teach from there. And don't give that piece up, but then teach from there. And, and the rules just blow the rules out the, out the window because, because essentially if you're teaching from there, students will learn, you're gonna do your job, everything's gonna go okay, as long as you're teaching from that spot. I guess I would say one other, one other thing, which is that the advice that I would have for institutions is kind of a corollary to my advice for teachers, which is start by trusting teachers. Teachers' work is deeply idiosyncratic. Teaching is a craft. It's something that people have worked on over many, many years and honed. Suddenly telling all of your teachers, you must teach inside the learning management system. That's not start by trusting teachers. It's not start by trusting the best instinct of teachers who know their students way better than the institution does in many cases. And so we have to find ways to valorize the work of teachers and the work of teaching. And I think part of start by trusting teachers is also making sure that teachers are paid equitably. So that's the other place I would put all of that money from the, the proctoring solutions towards <laughs> making more equitable pay for teachers. That was right. actually where I was going to go next before we wrap up, because um, I think there we should go back and think a little bit about what we were mentioning earlier, what you were saying earlier, about the institutional responsibility around this. I mean, you've described this process of online teaching that isn't particularly appealing. It's not always very desirable. And, and a reason for that is because, you know, these traditions, these pedagogical traditions that the that many institutions have sort of built up and held on to so tightly are, are still being enforced. So how can institutions be accountable for what is happening now? And what can they do to create an environment where critical digital pedagogy is, is possible? And maybe this isn't quite to answer that question um, because I kind, of, I kind of did pay teachers better is, is my immediate answer. Um, but I would mm -hmm. go back to the thing I said about the state of Illinois, the public education of Illinois, $23 million just thrown at a proctoring company. And what I would ask of the state of Illinois is how many of your staff and faculty are currently on furlough? How many of your staff and faculty have contingent positions? How many of your faculty are adjunct and don't know when their next contract is going to come? How many of your teachers are making less than a living wage? Ultimately, why in the world would we be giving 25 million to a proctoring company per year when we aren't even supporting the people on the ground doing the work with the students? Why in the world wouldn't all of that money find its way into the hands of teachers, whether through faculty development 
or through increased wages? Um, I rarely speak at the institutional level. Um, generally, I'm much more concerned with teachers and students. Um, and, and from that grassroots perspective, the idea of, of change coming from the bottom and going up. But one, one example actually comes out of University of Colorado Denver, where I work. Um, we, we have a new chancellor. And as soon as she came on, the first thing she did was she started um, what she called a listening tour, where essentially she had open Zoom sessions where people could just come and talk to her. Um, and it was really cool. And, and of course, there were, certain, there were certain things that needed to be said and certain uh, ideas that needed to be conveyed in those. But, but that listening is actually really, really key. It's something that we do for students. It's something we should be doing for teachers. We should be listening to their needs. When this happened, when the, the pivot um, occurred, at least in the States, right, we had no leadership from the, from the government around it. And so there was no, there was no sort of, here's how we're going to respond. Here's the things you need to be concerned about as a school, as a university, here's how we're going to respond. So every university was doing a different thing. And within universities, different departments were doing different things. And so it was complete chaos. What could have happened at that moment was for people to sort of say, okay, we're taking a pause, let's get together and talk. Let's figure this out. And there wasn't that kind of community situation. There was a kind of control. Let's do this. And, and, then, we'll, and then we'll be able to maintain our, all of our standards and everything will be the same except online. And that's the sort of thing that Jesse's talking about in terms of you know, licensing a proctoring service or, or working with Turnitin or working with an LMS. It's all really about how do we, how do we make sure that quality is being maintained. And it's, it's very much about a control sort of perspective. If instead we look at teaching and learning as a collaborative effort, as a community effort, as something that happens across uh, disciplines and across departments, and we start having opportunities where we can listen to each other, um, I think that we could do a lot more work. I mean, faculty development is great, but some of the best faculty developers are the people actually in class teaching and talking to each other about how teaching happens. I mean, obviously pay them, pay them more, pay them so much more and, <laughs> and give people secure jobs. That's absolutely essential, but let's really start dialoguing about all of this. I think that's a great place for us to finish this, that I, we cannot thank you enough today for taking this much time to speak to us and to, uh, to share your work and, and your thoughts about what's been happening. So thank you so much uh, for your time today. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so much. much. It was, it was been wonderful to talk. And also a big thank you to the two people behind the scenes who produced this episode with us, production support specialist Chloe Hazard and instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell. And we also want to thank the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast. Uh, we're recording today from our homes in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and also the Dish with One Spoon territory. 